This is the MFG Cast. Hey guys, Kurt here. Another episode, another fun interview, and I've got a great one. I have, and we're going to be talking about an awesome game that's coming on Kickstarter in April. He is Mike Ganad from Rock Manor Games. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Kurt. It's great to be here. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, you bet. And since you're so new to us, we always like to ask people that that important question how did you get into games so we like to go about go back to the past for when you started and to going through your story about and then coming into where you came into having your own company today so tell us a little bit about that. sure uh it's definitely been i mean obviously like most people uh i played a lot of games in my youth played magic revised when i was in sixth grade my friends and I got into like Warhammer miniatures. Then I moved across the country and sort of stopped with some of the nerdy stuff so I could fit in better in the new school I went to, like into high school. But always played like video games and stuff, was like always still a big gamer. I guess for me, like getting to the board game place again and like the tabletop space again, it's sort of been like a long road. When I graduated college and like my master's program and I was working at sort of a boring job, I started an online magazine covering indie video games called Indie Game Mag uh, that I sold. Then I had a site called Indie Game Stand that like featured indie games uh, that I sold. I made a like casual card game digitally uh, that was on Big Fish Games. So I've been involved in sort of like the indie video gaming space for almost 10 years. And that's actually how I got back into tabletop games was because I was actually at PAX East in you know therefore to sort of cover indie games and video games and there on sort of like a journalist and things like that and I got tired of walking around and and standing and playing everything on a monitor uh, and I wandered to the back and there were a bunch of empty tables and I sat down and played Ascension first but then played a couple other tabletop games and was like, these games are great. Like, why haven't I been playing these games? I used to love games like this. So that sort of sparked my interest in tabletops games again. And I started playing a lot of games. I really like deck builders in general still. Uh, so Ascension was a big addiction for me for a while. Um, but as I delved into the deck builder genre, I found that there were a lot of those games were very like solitaire experiences. When I invited a bunch of friends over, I'm like, you have to play this game. And then I was just sitting there waiting for them to make a decision on which card to buy. And I was like, come on, guys. Like, this is ridiculous. So <laughs> I sort of saw the faults in that game. So the first game that I made was sort of just a passion project for me and my friends to sort of create a game that uh, was more competitive, I guess, and more interactive between players. So that's sort of what got me to making, like, you know, launching my first Kickstarter and sort of trying to make a, a tabletop board game company. But obviously from my past, 
uh, I sort of have an entrepreneurial spirit and I've done a lot of different things sort of as well. So we're here to talk about your second Kickstarter, correct? For Maximum Apocalypse. So tell us what Maximum Apocalypse is about. Um, so uh, I guess the first thing that sort of came to me about Maximum Apocalypse was after working on Brass Empire, my first game, and making such a competitive deck builder, I wanted to do something very different. So I made a co-op game. So the first thing first was instead of trying to beat each other up and like screw over our friends, we're going to try to like work together now <laughs> and restore these friendships <laughs> that we've uh, shattered by playing my first game. Um, so that is sort of, I, I knew I wanted to make a cooperative game next. Maximum Apocalypse took a lot longer than Brass Empire from a design standpoint in general. I looked at a lot of other cooperative games and played a lot of them. You know, I'm a big fan of Pandemic, obviously, and Pandemic Legacy. But while I was working on Maximum Apocalypse, it wasn't like Brass Empire where I knew the genre I knew I wanted to do, so I was much more focused, and I felt like the game came together and was a was a game that that worked from at least worked getting starting a game and getting to an endpoint. Maximum Apocalypse was something I started. And while the basic ideas of it, uh, I think, were are, are still there, like the core game mechanics, I like had to burn to the ground and sort of start from scratch over and over again. Uh, there was one point, especially on my second iteration, where I just kept adding something like, oh, it'd be cool to have like a betrayal mechanic, like Dead of Winter, and it'd be cool to have this, like this, and it, you know, oh, I'm missing out on this, and it just got to the point where I felt like it was like a numbers grind, and it like wasn't fun. You're just like looking at a list, and like the rule book, and you're like, step one, do this, and like, oh, I got screwed, and like step two, like, and it just was like grinding through this list of steps in the rules, instead of like having interesting choices, and you know, interesting player interactions and team moments and like moments with your friends. So I've been working on this game for like over two years. It was a very long process, but you know, I definitely was sort of initially inspired by the idea of everyone sort of having their own uh, set of powers or, or abilities or classes. So that was a core idea that stayed through there the whole way. And then uh, there was at one point where the game was like much more comical and it was like Maximum Apocalypse, like, oh, zombies invaded, and the uh, zombies, the undead are rising, and, and aliens invaded, and, like, nuclear winter happened. So, like, <laughs> you know, we're really screwed, you know? And, like, we've got to overcome this crazy thing. And I still think the game can be fun and humorous that way. I mean, I've built the game so you could still shuffle together those apocalypses, but as I developed the game, it did become, like, a little more serious, like, graphic novel-type uh, presentation, uh, it started coming together, I think, a little better than just, like, a joke of, like, me and my friends saying, like, what if, like, you had to survive all these crazy things, you know, so I, I guess that's the genesis of it, and that's sort of where we are. Nice. So, when you're, it, this brings up a, a, a question I've actually kind of been thinking, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking to, you know, make a game and, and put it out there on Kickstarter like you are, because it seems like you really got everything down packed, but I'm kind of looking at my own making my own little game to kind of play around, play with friends and family and stuff like that. And, and it, it just made me think of a question when you were talking about it, like, you know, when you're making these games and you're, you know, you first think of, okay, this is what this game's image is, you know? And then you start to play it and you go, Oh, wait a minute. This, this is definitely not what it's supposed to be. You know, yeah. it's like, it's gotta be something else. And then you keep going. Is there, you know, when you're making this game, is there uh, is there a analysis paralysis part to it where it's like you just keep 
making so much that you're like, okay, I have to realize that the the game that I have is focused on this, and I can't go outside of this. Otherwise, it's going to totally ruin exactly what this theme is all about. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, I think, for one, I think you need to be able to let go of some game ideas. Um, you know, there are some prototypes that you have and games that you make that never work, and you have to be willing to sort of throw them away and and uh, move on. And I certainly did that with Maximum Apocalypse as well. There was times where I got to that point where I felt like it was a numbers grind and it just wasn't fun anymore. And I was like, oh, like, screw this. And, like, you know, part of that time, that two years of making the game, there's definitely a few months where you just, like, put it on the shelf and you're like, you know, you need to take a step back and and think about it. But, But like I said, some of the core ideas of, like, being able to choose your class of character and, like, everybody having their own abilities... And working together through like different apocalyptic scenarios as you watch a movie or a television show, you're like, oh, that would fit in that like game idea I had. And like sometimes it sparks something new and you go back to it. And whether it's sort of a, uh, a theme story type focus thing where you're like, I'm going to focus more on what makes that show cool or that those those themes in that show cool. And I want to try to bring that into a game or whether it's just getting away from your game that you've been trying to like push through and make fun and add these things to and like taking a step back and then coming back to it and being able to say like, you know what? X, Y, and Z aren't fun. I'm going to cut those out. You know, C, D, and E are really fun. I'm going to like keep those in and focus on making like new cards or whatever around interesting decisions of, of those things that are fun. Um, so that definitely happens. And for me personally, you know, one of the really helpful things is we have a Game Makers Guild of Philadelphia that's here. So we have a local group of people that all make their own games and we get together twice a month. I usually can only make it once a month because I have a two-year-old. But um, I do I do, I do, do force myself to make it once a month and make sure I've got someone to watch the kid or whatever. And uh, that's really helpful when you have people who are making games, trying to make games, play a lot of games, look, look over a game that's very new or fresh with sort of fresh eyes and they can say like, that's genius. That's really fun. Or that's not fun. That stinks. And because of that group, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, I definitely feel like, uh, I get a reality check sort of through the process and I know what to put on the shelf and, and what to sort of keep going with. Uh, we also do cool events. Like we've got like mini unpubs and stuff that we do at our local game store here. So, that kind of stuff is really helpful. You know, when you're getting away from your sort of inner circle of friends, going to other people who either are more invested in the hobby or sort of trying to do it themselves, they give you some perspective, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's kind of expanding on that. So when you bring these games to these kind of places, it seems like you got a pretty good attitude about it. But, you know, is there, do you sometimes have a hard time when you're, when you're pushing some of the things that you really think are a big part of this game. And when people tell you that they don't really like it or, you know, this something, something not needed, is it something where, you know, right away you're like, okay, I totally understand. Or is, you know, are, is there like that, you know, good angel, bad angel, or it's like, you know, a couple of times you're like, well, oh, I see that idea. And then another time you're like, you're wrong. You're totally wrong. I'm not doing that. So I think with game design, whether it's digital or tabletop, one of the important things to take when you're taking like criticism from people playing your game is if someone's played a game like once, you need to take criticism and feedback all with a grain of salt, right? So if, mm-hmm. 
no matter what you do, everyone doesn't like every game. You know what I mean? So if someone says like, oh, I just don't like this and like there's too much dice rolling or something, you know what I mean? Like if they give you something like a feedback like that, like there's too much dice rolling. Well, there's some games that are all like the whole game is just dice rolling. So obviously that's like not something to worry about because people who like dice rolling will probably like your game and people who don't like dice rolling. Like it's a, that's something that exists in games. Like you do, you roll dice. Mm -hmm. So, um, you need to sort of take feedback with a grain of salt, but the important thing I think is to get out there, play test your game. Because what happens is, is if there is a major problem, the same feedback, even if it's not phrased exactly the same, will sort of come, you know, you'll sort of start here. You'll sort of hear the same things mm -hmm. over and over again. Like, you know, like that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. Or that, that doesn't work. That, that felt bad. You know, that I can't describe it exactly, but, you know, that felt cheap, you know, that felt cheap to me that the game was cheating me mm -hmm. and I couldn't do what I needed to do. And, you know, that kind of stuff, as much as you may math it out in Excel, if something doesn't feel like good to the player, like that's something you want to try to fix. Even if you've got to sort of fake the numbers, like numbers can only get you so far. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I know a lot of people who, uh, game designers who get really into like Excel spreadsheets and, <laughs> and trying to balance all the math out. And the reality is, is, you can balance the math as much as you want, but if you don't have players making those decisions, you may need to change the math so that's a little more advantageous to take that decision because it's not as obvious a decision to make, you know, or a strategy to take. Uh, so, again, I just think it's about iterating and playtesting uh, yeah. and, and taking the feedback. You know, the best feedback will sort of come again and again and again, just like the best uh, games you know, when you play them over and over and over again, you're still, you're still having fun. You're still finding new things, discovering new things. Mm -hmm. So tell me how Maximum Apocalypse plays. Okay. So uh, the short sort of one sentence uh, pitch is that Maximum Apocalypse is a cooperative roguelike adventure. I personally haven't played a roguelike tabletop game. I'm sure there are some out there from people who are like, have 400 games in their tabletop collection that they know of some stuff, but I'm very familiar with like roguelikes and procedural generation and video games. So um, I tried to sort of fuse those ideas together. So uh, some of the core unique things about Maximum Apocalypse are uh, number one, it's different every time you play. Uh, the board, if you will, is made up of a lot of individual tiles that you and your friends uh, randomly shuffle and sort out uh, based on the mission or scenario that you choose or the or the level if you're using a video game terminology <laughs> you sort of pick a, a mission that you want to attempt you pick an apocalypse so you say let's try to save the researcher from the zombie apocalypse you look up that mission in the mission log uh, you take the tiles associated with that mission that you need to complete the mission you shuffle them up and you make a board however you want you can make a simple square board you can make a bunch of holes and things you've got to navigate around and a bunch of branches and dead ends. It does not matter. Obviously, the more dead ends and branches you have, the harder it can be. But ultimately, you and your friends have sort of the ability to adjust the difficulty as you see fit. So that's sort of how you set up the game. And then everybody chooses a survivor. So you can choose like a fireman, a hunter, a gunslinger, a surgeon. They all sort of have different... Uh, you know, obviously different traits based on uh, what their sort of class is based around and their own unique deck of cards that you play from. Um, and then you start the game on your trusty van and you park the van in the map 
the map grid, and then you start moving around the map. And as you move over to these tiles, you flip them over, and good stuff happens, and bad stuff happens, and monsters appear, and you've got to kill them and survive. You'll start starving to death. You need to collect food and find things and scavenge for gas to fill up your van so you can escape and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The fun of the game uh, continues on. But, but that's sort of the basic premise and setup. Nice. So why did you decide to go with tiles instead of the conventional board? Uh, well, again, I couldn't think of a way to make sort of a procedural generated world or map with, with a traditional board. I mean, the nature of manufacturing and printing tabletop games is you are printing something physical that can't change. There isn't there isn't any uh, cool magic card that you can change what the card is on the card, you know, every time you play. So by by having uh, tiles, you can sort of make a board. You know, they're square tiles, so you can make a grid and fill in a grid. I mean, it's very it's very video gamey. I mean, you just think about like a Legend of Zelda map, right? That's like in your little top corner of Legend of Zelda, you've got that grid, and as you move through the dungeon, uh, the grid fills out where the rooms are, and you know what stuff is. But as you when you first enter the dungeon, all you know is this one room you're in, and you're just hoping you can find your way through. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely borrowed from that concept. Um, and just thought, oh, well, if I'm looking at that little map in Zelda and I'm making it a board game, you know, every time you enter this map, you know, I mean, obviously it's a little different. You're in a van and you're sort of exploring locations rather than exploring a dungeon. But but that that, that is a way to make a dungeon a, a different shape every time. And, and while the locations are sort of, you'll see the same locations again and again. They're more like, uh, they're more like activating certain things and certain Mm -hmm. bad stuff happens than than anything else um and and it does feel different based on how you navigate through and what you choose so yeah so yeah it's like it it's like yeah it's it and i like it with the theme of apocalypse too because it's like with any apocalypse game there's always danger around it at every turn so this kind of ramps it up a little bit you know there's gonna be some safe spots but it also you know brings out that you know what could happen next kind of thing yeah, absolutely. So this is your second game on Kickstarter. Your first game, Brass Empire, you've already sold out of your first run. Which, congratulations on that. You've got your second game coming out on a Kickstarter, coming out in April here. So what do you have, what What are some of the things that you've learned with this first game, you know, getting it onto Kickstarter from, you know, what you're going to be doing with Maximum Apocalypse now? Yeah, I guess the... Uh... I mean, I feel like the biggest things I learned uh, from Brass Empire um, has less to do with game design and more to do with, like, logistics. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the thing I've learned the, the most since Brass Empire is, uh, I think the f- manufacturing thing, I think I've learned some things about manufacturing, but a lot of people, when they want to make a game, think that's the biggest hurdle. And I think the biggest hurdle is figuring out how to fulfill to all your backers in a financially feasible way. So one of the things I feel like I've learned a lot about is how to, I did use a fulfillment center the first time, um, but it was based only in the United States. So I fulfilled from one fulfillment center, which made going to certain areas of the EU a little bit more expensive than I would have liked and made shipping to places like Australia really expensive, which is why I didn't have a lot of Australian backers. So one of the things I feel like I've done a lot of work in working with the partners I did the first time around is figuring out 
all those different fulfillment centers I can use and the different partners I can use um, for this next Kickstarter. So I feel like I'm going to be much more aggressive in my offering to not only the EU and the UK, um, which was pretty good because I shipped from the East Coast of the United States, so it's not as far, it wasn't as expensive. I'm going to be fulfilling, I'm going to ship to a fulfillment center in either the UK or Germany. I still haven't decided yet, but I, I've got two contacts, uh, which is going to make it a lot. I mean, I, I think it's going to make shipping, it's going to help me keep my shipping costs down and also help me, uh, you know, hopefully get more backers from around the world. I'm hoping to do a fulfillment center in Australia as well. So I'm trying to focus on sort of the other English heavy board gaming heavy countries that a lot of other Kickstarters do. I offered I offered worldwide friendly shipping last time too, where like people didn't have to pay customs, but the actual logistics of shipping it, everything was shipped from like up in Boston or something, like up in New Hampshire. So even though stuff was going to Australia, like with customs free. It was like shipping from New... It's like I sent it from China all the way to New Hampshire back to Australia. And like, obviously that doesn't make sense from like, if you look at a map and you're like, what's the best way to get somebody their game? <laughs> the best way is to ship like a bunch of games to a place in Australia and then ship out to all the Australian people like their games from there. So I definitely feel like I learned a lot from that and I'm going to do a lot better with that this time. I also think in general, like my Kickstarter page, just joining like groups on Facebook, like the tabletop Kickstarter advice groups and stuff that are out there. I feel like, I feel like I've, I feel like my page will look better and like my rewards are going to be a lot more focused. It's going to be like, you know, donate a dollar or more and like you can follow my updates and you'll get like the print and play with like full graphics, pay X for the game pay a little bit more for both of my games, you know, because I'm hoping to do a second print run of Brass Empire coupled with this uh, Kickstarter as well. And that's like it. It's like, <laughs> it's like buy Maximum Apocalypse, buy Brass Empire and Maximum Apocalypse or not. Like that's all the rewards. We're not getting fancy. We're not doing a bunch of other stuff. I'm trying to keep it a lot more simple and focused just around producing this game and the best game that I can. Um, so there's, there's little things like that. There was one more thing I wanted to mention about this, but it wasn't as related to Kickstarter as with the game itself, but maybe it'll come back to me. <laughs> nice. We can move on. I don't want to keep everyone no, waiting. No, that's fine. I had a couple of questions off, or a couple of comments off of that. I, I like the, you know, not putting so many flashy things in, you know, with a Kickstarter. You know, it seems like a lot of, a lot of times, you know, there's these companies that want to do that and they be like, you know, and here are some sleeves for this and there's a mat for that. And it's like, you don't, you know, I would be more satisfied with getting a good quality game, getting it on time, you know, exactly where I want it at that time instead of having to worry about, you know, taking a survey about this or, you know, trying to wait for, you know, this other thing to come into contact and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the whole thing with you having, you know, trying to get those more focused warehouses to ship, to, you know, overseas, that's a great thing because, you know, one of the things that I have heard from, you know, some of our friends overseas and stuff like that, that, you know, uh, fortunately for us here in the States, it's a lot easier for us to get games. I mean, it, there's just a lot more, a lot more people that are focused in the States and a lot more people that are willing to ship free to the States and getting right. stuff outside of there. And, you know, you know, people in Australia, they're like, okay, well I have to drive, you know, like six hours just to get to a local game store that I can, you know, get something, you know, and stuff like that. So it's, it's good to have those things in mind, you know, cause a lot of times people want, you know, when people are making a game, they just want to be like, 
here it is. I look at all the flashy lights and look at all this, you know, and it's like you have to realize that you're, you have to really focus on the people that are buying your games because if they're not, if their needs aren't met, then the whole thing goes kaplooey. Yeah, I mean, I think delivering quickly on Kickstarter is very important to me. Like, I know as a Kickstarter backer, there's nothing worse than, like, backing something and then, like, waiting two years for it. Like, obviously, when you back it, you want it then. And I know that's not realistic. But, (laughs) you know, one of the things I was really happy with, even with my first go around, was that I delivered my game to my backers in about eight or nine months. Like, they had it in their hands, depending on, you know, obviously where they're located. Um, So... And one of the key reasons why I was able to do that is because I finished and completed all of the artwork for my first game before I launched on Kickstarter. Um, so, like, all the artwork was done or almost done, like, when the Kickstarter started. And then, obviously, you sort of have 30 days to, like, finish up and get everything, like, print ready. Um, you sort of have a few months after the Kickstarter to sort of finalize all those details. Um, and that's sort of been my same goal with Maximum Apocalypse. Um, so I, I literally am at the point now where the artist, I know he, he does, he's, he's, he's cranking out 20 pieces of artwork a month and I know how many art pieces we have left. And like part of the reason we timed the Kickstarter like we did is because I knew that we would be done or, or at least working on the final sort of set of art that we needed to go to print in April. And like April's sort of going to be finishing up sort of hopefully some stretch goal artwork and finishing up a couple pieces that we're missing and like then we'll be good to go. So, nice. I mean, that's that's something that that's the only way that you can deliver like in under a year, I think, from and, and still manufacture in China is like if you have the game basically ready to go um, Kickstarter day one. So that's I, I don't plan on ever breaking that <laughs> that uh, that that trend because that's served me well so far. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. It kind of leads me into my next question, actually, talking about art. I love the art on this. It it kind of reminds me of, like, a Borderlands or, like, a, you know, kind of like a comic book, almost apocalypse kind of art or whatever. Ta- tell us about the artist you got for it and how you decided on that. Sure. So the, the artist, I don't want to mess his name up because he is not in the United States. <laughs> I mean, his first name's easy. It's Gustav. And then I guess you would say his last name as Rangmar. So he's obviously Nordic. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the process I use for Brass Empire and this game is something I've used sort of in my history as an entrepreneur and working in video games is I hit up forums like conceptart.org and ArtStation. There's there's so many artists out there that just want to draw cool stuff. They have a passion. They want to get into games. There you know there's 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 so many people who are passionate about this kind of stuff. So I always find the hard thing to find is not someone who's passionate about it, but someone who's professional, can deliver things on deadlines, uh, and and sort of is affordable too. So the way I've always filtered people is I sort of post my job. I'm very uh, explicit in sort of what I'm looking for and what my budget is up front. You get you when you do that, you get a ton of emails. You get way too many emails than you're ever gonna be able to <laughs> answer. Um, but what I do is I sort of and everyone sends you a link to their portfolio, obviously. Mm-hmm. So once I get that back, I start going through the portfolios and I start marking the people that I like or that that fit the description. So so like when you describe Maximum Apocalypse as Borderlands, sort of graphic novel, comic book style. That's what I described in my piece first. It's like, I'm doing a game. I need an artist. I'm looking for like a comic book, graphic novel type artwork 
but I'm open to if your artwork is different. I'm sort of open to other interpretations. But like, this is what the game's about. Here's some links to some art that I like, based on sort of what I'm envisioning. I got you. Then you get a bunch of emails, and what I do is I I actually pick. I think I picked like five or six people based on their portfolio and I do an art test. And basically what an art test is, it's I pay you a little bit of money. So I pay you 50 bucks. So let's say uh, I tell you what I want you to draw. And then I see how long I see how you listen to me, how you communicate and how and sort of like the art that you send. And then you send me back sort of like a sketch and you'll be amazed how that process eliminates so many I mean, even of the people you pick, of the, I mean, obviously you eliminate a lot of people based mm-hmm. on just the portfolios you like, but of the portfolios you like, you'd be surprised how quickly you trim it down to people that are responsive, that you feel you can trust, to send like money off to for people you've never met, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So I feel like I've, I've been burned and I've, I've sort of, I've sort of created my own process over the years that I've, I'm sticking to that works for me. And uh, so far with Brass Empire and, Maximum Apocalypse, it's served me well, and I feel like I've gotten, you know, great art that I could afford, and I've I've had people that, you know, deliver the pieces to me and are and are good at communicating back and forth and, you know, speak English decently, etc. So I can communicate with them. So that's sort of how I did it. Um, nothing special about it, but I do feel like paying somebody a little bit up front. Like I've been burned by some people with the art test, but my thing is I'd rather be burned 50 bucks than like a thousand bucks and get like half of what I needed, you know, mm-hmm. like or, or not even what I needed, you know, and you're just like, where is this? Like, where's this art I needed? And I paid half for, or put it, gave a deposit for you for. So I'm, I'd rather lose like 50, 60 bucks, 200 bucks, figuring out who works best for me than like thousands of dollars down the line. So I, you know, I feel like we've talked about this quite a bit. I mean, it, it sounds like a great idea. I like the whole laying the tiles in the way that you want to, you can kind of set scenarios and stuff like that. Is it, do you have like, I'm guessing you probably have preset scenarios that people can do, but also it's just kind of, they can do whatever they want to make it harder and, or less hard. Yeah. I mean, hearkening back to one of the things you asked based on like feedback and getting things through playtesting. One of the things somebody suggested to me. Uh, when I was demoing sort of like a full mission. So think of like, I, I would say a typical game, a typical scenario, if you're playing for real with your friends, lasts somewhere between 45 minutes to 90 minutes, mm-hmm. depending on how many players you have and which mission you select, etc. cetera. Uh, so I was pl- always playtesting these full missions that were actually going to be like the meat of the game. And as I was going to these cons and everything else, someone said to me like, well, what if you had like a, a tutorial or like a, you know, sort of a demo mission or something? So while the core missions don't have a specific set, I really don't want to strict, restrict people on how they build the map. So mm-hmm. a mission scenario will tell you, use these 18 tiles, use these 20 tiles, use these 24 tiles. And obviously the more tiles you have, the bigger the map and the longer the game is potentially. So it will tell you a set set number of tiles and which tiles to use for any scenario, but it doesn't show you how to lay the map out. Um, because I feel like as soon as I introduce a preset layout, 90% of the people are gonna use the layout that I put in the, put in the rules. And you're really missing out on what I think is one of the coolest things about the game if you do that. But what I did do is I made a, t- a tutorial mission which has like half the tiles that a normal game does. I think it has like 12 tiles. And um, you start, 
it, it's basically like the second half of a mission. So all you have to do is you're at a location and you have to get back to your van and collect enough gas to fuel it up and get out of there. You see a van in the distance, shit's hit the fan, you got to get to the van. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and that's, that's what happens in later missions a lot is that shit hits the fan and you got to collect some gas and get hightail it out of there and get back to the van. But there's usually like a, there's usually some exploration and some slow build to that point. So I did create a, a tutorial mission that has a set map layout that you can sort of place the van here, the like hospital here. You put your guys on the hospital. You put these 12 tiles. You do shuffle them up, but you place them in these exact locations to create this own little map with its own little hole that you've got to navigate around. And uh, it's a great way to sort of learn the game in like 20 to 30 minutes. Um, nice. It's also sort of what I've been testing and running at cons. So the only negative I can say about the tutorial is obviously it's very easy. Like I don't I don't think anyone's lost at the tutorial yet, which disappoints me a little bit as the game designer. I like seeing people lose. Um, yeah, okay. But it's a, it's a tutorial, so it's okay. It's a it's a tutorial, so it's okay. I sort of feel like so. That's what a tutorial's for, right? Oh well, yeah, exactly. Well, maybe it'll it'll make them feel all nice and fuzzy, and then when they get obliterated, then it'll shake them up a little bit and make things more interesting. <laughs> that's great so what's next for rock manor games we do have a lot of stuff in the work depending on how this thing goes this next year could be a busy one for us um i, I i'm actually i'm cautiously optimistic about maximum apocalypse so <laughs> because i've had this great relationship with this artist and i sort of want to keep it going i've actually talked to him about commissioning him into the summer and spring about continuing to work on the project to sort of make an expansion so I sort of plan to roll into the expansion for Maximum Apocalypse and at least start production on it uh, sort of right after hopefully a, a successful Kickstarter happens. We'll see. We'll mm -hmm. see how that goes. Like I said, I'm cautiously optimistic. But uh, <laughs> And then I, I've been working on a Brass Empire expansion uh, for a while, and we've started art production on it. It's just sort of been a slow thing. I feel like... I could, I, could, I could put out a small expansion. Like, we have a sixth faction for Max, uh, for Brass Empire that is finished, and I could do an expansion for that, but I always sort of planned a bigger expansion, so I'm sort of debating... As a gamer, I would just prefer to have a much bigger expansion, but as a business person, part of me saying, well, this totally works, and, like, it could help pay for a second print run of Brass Empire, and everyone's told me that I should just do it and add a sixth player, and it would make so much sense... So we'll see how that goes. But there will eventually be a Brass Empire expansion. I just don't know if it'll be sooner or later. And then I've got two other games I've been testing at Game Makers Guild of Philadelphia. One, especially, we just had our meeting this past Wednesday, went really well. I, I like Everyone liked it. And when I came to the feedback from a bunch of game designers, they did not have a lot of feedback. <laughs> they were like, uh, I liked it. It was really fun. I would play it again. <laughs> like right now, it was very little stuff. Like... Uh, it's, it's a programming game, so you sort of have to pick your moves ahead of time and put your cards face down, and then you go around in circle and reveal your cards and, and do what your cards say in, in that order. But you can't change it. You can't change your mind once things change. Uh, so one of the things, like, the, I think the only sort of definitely definite change tweak we're going to make is when we played it, we played that when you collected your three things, uh, the game just ended and you won. And what we were saying is that since it's a programming game, we should like finish the round because someone else could get their three things at the same time and like chai, or you can steal things from other people. And I'm saying things because like the theme on this game is like it doesn't have a title, it doesn't have 
<laughs> you know, I don't know what the theme would be. I don't know what things you would be stealing from each other, or what would be going on. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, it, it is what it is at this point. But um, I'm excited about it. And the next thing I want to try to do is actually I want to try to run it by my wife, who's not as big of a gamer, but likes um, when she likes a board game, it's sort of I feel like this game could be a little bit more of like that. Uh, not not casual, because it's definitely not casual, but like a, a gateway game or whatever, where it's like not as intense. Like Maximum Apocalypse is pretty intense. Brass Empire, intense from a competitive standpoint, but at least a little bit easier to learn if you've played deck builders before. This game, I think, would be probably the easiest game to teach uh, and learn, because the rules are very simple. And what sort of makes it interesting is how how the board changes and how your decisions, you're, you've, you're, you're locked into these decisions and like, based on what other players can do, you can be completely messed up. You know what I mean? Like it can completely <laughs> mess you up. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see if some of these other ideas and prototypes that we're throwing around come to anything. Um, but right, but right now I'm hoping to sort of get maximum apocalypse done. And then I'm hoping to sort of do brass empire expansion, maximum apocalypse expansion and work on some of these other games. And if one of them becomes something more, maybe squeeze it in there somewhere. But but that's sort of what we're planning loosely. Of course, being an indie game developer, you sort of never know. You have to sort of <laughs> roll with whatever comes your way. You never know exactly what's going to happen. But but that's sort of what I'm hoping to accomplish, at least. Nice. Well, it sounds like you guys have a lot going on. And um, just by hearing what's going on with this Maximum Apocalypse, it seems like something that uh, is has a lot pulling from a lot of different areas, but it's something that is very unique in its own way. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that are interested in it. So once it comes out, once the Kickstarter comes out on April 4th, I think a lot of people are going to be pretty excited about it. And I'm pretty yeah, excited about so. it. Too. I mean, it'd be, it'd be great to, uh, it'd be great to fund quickly because, uh, I mean, I've got some stretch goals planned, but I'm not, I'm not revealing those until we're funded. I'm not doing yeah. the, I'm not going to set out that grid and then be like, depressed when like there's no way we're going to hit like one of the top things i'm going to reveal it very very directed very realistic as we hit things i'm going to reveal like two to three stretch stretch goals at a time and again just like the rewards are focused my stretch goals gonna be very focused yeah where it's yeah. like these are the three things we should focus on now people if we unlock these three things there'll be three other things but like let's get these cool things first yeah exactly um, i don't know how you guys do it with with your kickstarters because i because, you know, we work with all these different game companies that go through Kickstarter. And, like, you see some people that get it right away and you're like, oh, thank goodness. And you get some people that, unfortunately, don't. And you're like, I'm so sorry. And then you get those people that it hits it, but it takes, like, the last three days. And you're like, right. I feel so bad for you because I'm sure you're just pulling your hair out, screaming at the computer. And you're like, why won't, you know, just... Well, I mean, the real people dollars. that kill it, I mean, you know, all the major companies that use Kickstarter do pretty pretty well and are pretty pretty good at the system for sure i mean i think the cool thing about maximum apocalypse is because you know i'm sort of working on quotes and stuff now there's a lot of cool chances to upgrade some of the components in the game you know like this grid this map that we've been talking about if if i barely fund you know i've always used for my prototypes just uh just square cards you know like the square cards that come in games like uh you know playing cards playing card stock or whatever but I mean, one of the things I really hope that we hit is, like, upgrading those to cardboard, like, nice, thick cardboard, like, tiles, because then it'll feel even more like a board yeah. when you're, like, laying them and laying it out. So 
unlike my first Kickstarter, which was like basically just a card game, this game actually has a lot of opportunities to upgrade like components and get like cooler, cooler bits, you know what I mean? Like for your table and like what everybody likes, which is nice because that, that, that doesn't affect the game as much either. It's like the game is just as good, like from a, from a play, from a game design standpoint, it doesn't matter, but from a production sort of quality standpoint, player standpoint, uh, there's there's certainly people, and I understand why, who like love the good bits. Like one of my big things is I love the metal like the metal coins. <laughs> if you can give me metal coins instead of like chipboard coins, I love that. I think that's so cool. Where I can like clink clink my money together if, if the game has money in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's better than those little paper coins that you get in the older games and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Or the play money you're used to when you were a kid. Yeah, that sounds great. So like you know like I said. Uh, Go on Kickstarter starting here April 4th. Help uh, Mike and Rock Manor Games fund this game. It's going to be, it sounds like a lot of fun, and I'm excited to see what happens with it. So, Mike, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. It's going to be a crazy time. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm sure it'll go great. You'll be fine. No, I say that. Well, what's really crazy is uh, my second kid is due like April 3rd. Oh, jeez. So. Yeah. So, you're so gonna I'm, definitely, a... I'm definitely going to have an infant. Whether. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, during so, this Kickstarter, but, yeah, but I actually oh, well, think it'll work see. well. I'm gonna it's t- like... Can I talk to your wife so I can talk and tell her to talk you off the edge about that time? And... <laughs> I, I just figured, I just figured I'm going to be up late at night anyway. What better time, uh, to hold, you know, to, to answer those comments on Kickstarter, knowing from my first Kickstarter, when you're like looking on your phone all the time and like interacting with your backers, I figure, Hey, I'll be home and you know, <laughs> I, at least all I have to worry button. about is an infant and the Kickstarter. I won't have like other work obligations going on or whatever. Nice, so. nice, nice. So be able to focus on it. Yeah, it's also just sort of how it worked out too, ironically. So it's like I got to do it now, or I'm not going to do it. I'm going to lock this date in. Like I'm locking it in, <laughs> <laughs> or I'm not going to have it. I'm not going. This this game's not going to exist for like another six months. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, again, Mike, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Your RPG campaign sucks. Wait, come back, I'm just kidding! Do I have your attention now? Your campaign might be good, but it may be missing a little something. That's where Battle Bards comes in. Battle Bards is premium tabletop audio to take your game to the next level. Is your player's level 5 fighter ready to smack a orc in the face? Battle Bards has a sound effect for that. Is your level 3 rogue ready to talk some information out of a barkeep? Battle Bards has the voice acting for that. Are your characters ready for a halfling camp song that raises spirits and shows your players a better time? Battle Bards is here for all your fantasy audio needs. And with the MFG cast, we can help out. Go to BattleBards.com right now, sign up for an account, and with purchasing a $10 and $25 package, use the code MFGCAST1 and you get a free song, The Dwarf Temple, The Soul Forging Score Music. If you're into buying $50 and $100 packages, you'll get five total tracks on us for free with using the code MFGCAST2, including a Monsterscape I Monster Combat Behold Extermination, the Soundscape Dungeon Dungeon of Loss Inhabited, the MPC script Armorsmith Steel and Silk, and the sound effect Shortbow Arrow Barrage. And if you're really ready to get into that fantasy audio, buy your $150 and $300 packages and get 10 total tracks, one full album for free from us by putting in the code MFGCAST3, including music, Dark Elf City, Morning Doer, score music, 
the sound effect, magic missile spell, the monsterscape, common giant, torture, hill giant, and entertaining at home. Also, racial language, orcish, orc, brute, lashes out, and including soundscape, castle ruins, ruins of the black castle at night. BattleBards has hundreds of great fantasy audio at your fingertips to use for that great audio enhancing experience for all your RPG gaming. Or if you want to enhance your board gaming, or if you do something online, like say a podcast like we do, you can use all that fantasy audio, bring it up to the next level. You don't trust us? Well, how about BattleBards audio is being used for the Dungeon Rats podcast? The God's Fall podcast, or maybe you've heard a little something called Critical Role on YouTube, or them having a contract with the Roll20 app, BattleBards has all your fantasy audio waiting, and a big thank you to BattleBards for being a sponsor on the show. Legends of Tabletop Podcast, creating legends one die at a time.